Throughout history, there have been countless numbers of families in conflict. If you're a lover of literature, of course, you know the great Shakespeare play, Romeo and Juliet, and the Montagues, and the Capulets, and the the strain that exists between those families. And if you're not a great lover of literature, or at least Shakespearean literature, like I am not, then perhaps this example would better suit you. The Hatfields and the McCoys. Who knows the Hatfields and the McCoys, right? Forget the Montagues and the Capulets. We need none of that. The Hatfields and the McCoys have a legendary hatred for each other that, as best I can tell, started over an argument over who owned a pig, right? And lasted into 20 years of untold violence and hatred towards each other. All through our world and all through the history of it, there's these realities of families in conflict. And the truth of the matter is that the Bible itself portrays a story of families in conflict, specifically two families in conflict. And we want to talk about that reality today. To do that, we're going to look in the book of 1 John chapter 3. So, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn there. If not, the verses will be right up on the screen for you to follow along as I read. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. There's that adoption stuff that we talked about last week. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Talking about Jesus. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made fully known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. And all who have this hope in Him They purify themselves just as He is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin itself is lawlessness. But you know that He appeared so that He might take away our sins. And in Him is no sin. No one who lives in Him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen Him or known Him. Those are strong words. We'll talk about what that means in a minute. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and their sister. What on earth is going on in this passage of Scripture? Well, I think it is clear at the very end and implied all throughout this idea of families in conflict. And John chooses to use the language of children of God, one family, and children of the devil, another family. That's super strong language. 
and probably um, doesn't sit well with our modern sensibilities. So I want to tame that down just a little bit to help you understand what John's actually trying to say. Because John uses like strong universal language, and we need to make sense of him. He speaks in, in uh, portraits and pictures and um, uh, mosaics rather than in kind of cold hard facts like some other of uh, our New Testament writers do. Uh, so if we're going to understand him, we've got to understand the broad, sweeping story of the Bible, of Scripture, to make sense of what's honestly going on in this passage of Scripture. So John says there's two families, children of the devil, children of God. But what he really means when he says that is there's two families, uh, the family of Jesus, children of God, and the family of Adam, children of the devil. Now when I say Adam, I don't mean me per se, I'm talking about Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, right? Although those of you who know me, you'd be like, yeah, you're in there too, right? We, and that's right. Uh, so why does John call the children of Adam, that is the human family, the totality of humanity, why does he call them children of the devil? Because when John is using this language of children, he's talking about following. He's talking about uh, in essence, where we're headed, what we're part of, what's the direction, what's the trajectory. That's why he, uses, he says, because the devil's been sinning from the beginning, and we're kind of doing that same thing. So we're children of the devil, but in its more pure sense, we're children of Adam. So what does it mean to follow the devil? Well, if we think about the, the biblical story of the devil, some of you are familiar with this, that is that uh, the devil desired to be like God, right? And to be higher than God. And it was his prideful claim at God's position that led to his being cast out of the presence of God and led to a whole new reality uh, of this world. And of course, then we get right into the opening chapters of Genesis and we have this beautiful story of God creating all things and then as the capstone of His creation, creating humanity, man and woman together and saying, now my creation is very good and now I can rest because humanity had this key role to play, bearing, uh, carrying the image of God and bearing His character as caretakers of the created world. We were meant to be His agents of grace and of uh, of creation uh, bearing his character and his essence to the created world. This was our job. This is our job. But Adam and Eve, in following the lead of the devil in some way, are pulled away by the simple temptation, and I use simple to be sort of basic and yet cut right to the chase, right? Because it's actually not simple. This simple temptation of, wouldn't you rather be like God than simply be His agents in this world? And so, when I fully understood that a number of years ago, it finally made sense to me why an apple, of all things, could lead to human rebellion, right? We look in our cupboards, we look everywhere, and we see all kinds of wonderful food that actually could tempt us. No one in the history of the world has actually been tempted by an apple, right? And yet somehow in the Bible, we've got to make sense of this crazy story where Satan was like, listen, 
how about an apple? And all of humanity crumbles. But that, of course, was not the temptation. It wasn't an apple. It was what was behind eating from that tree. And it's the very thing that the devil pulled out. He says, no, God doesn't want you to do that because he knows if you do it, you'll be like him. And that's the very question and temptation that leads into this idea of becoming a child of the devil for Adam in that moment as opposed to being a child of God. He went from a a beautiful uh, finale of creation who walked arm in arm with God to being cast out of that place. And, And the rebellion of Adam leads to all kinds of insecurity and all kinds of violence. We just go one more chapter in the Old Testament and we find brothers killing each other. And, and we can't make sense of this except to understand that this, this inward rebellion, this inward desire to be God instead of to be His servant in the world has captured the heart of all of humanity. has thrown it into utter chaos leads to this inward reality of shame that if we're honest as human beings, directs much of what we do. Because we have this desire to be like God, and yet we know that we fall short or don't yet have that status. And our inward shame leads to all kinds of effects in our outward relationships with this created world, with each other as fellow human beings, and with God Himself, We do violence to all of it. In our world filled with chaos, we have everyone going after a singular role of God and we wonder why our world is like it is. When John says there are people who are children of the devil, what he means is there are people who can trace their origin back to Adam. And you're saying, well, wait a minute, that's all of us. And I'm saying, yeah, you got it exactly right. That's why... The adoption that we talked about last week is so significant because what happened in the garden with Adam had cosmic effects. This is what Paul writes to the church in Rome in Romans chapter 5 in trying to explain the reality of the family of Adam. He says this, he says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Now theologians have tried to make sense of this verse and the bigger passage that it comes from, and they've suggested all kinds of realities of how we're connected to Adam. And I would suggest to you that most of them are far smarter than me, and you should read up on what they say. Uh, And there are lots of great theories on that, but really the theories matter very little. Because Paul is simply describing the world as he saw it. And the world as he saw it is the same world that we are living in. And we see it. We see the effects of this rebellion all around us. We see it in all of our relationships. And when we're honest, we see it most severely inside of ourselves. That we're part of this family. Either by nature or by nurture. And I would suggest by both. That we're born this way and we learn this way because we're part of this family and this culture. And the only hope that we could ever have is if God would insert Himself and do something on our behalf. 
This is what we celebrated at Easter, this new family that arises, because it's directly into this mess that Jesus himself steps into. And because this new family of God is started, we have the opportunity to be adopted out of the family of Adam, do you see it? And into the new family of God. It's why it's new creation language that we talk about at Easter. Because it's like the garden again through Jesus. Jesus becomes the Adam that Adam never could be. Do you see it? And that's why we have to be part of this new family to regain our connection with God and in so doing, regain what it means to be truly human in who we are. And so John rightly says, we are blessed to be able to be called children of God. And then he has that affirmative statement, and that is what we are. So critically significant. Do you understand what adoption does? Adoption takes us out of this family of Adam that is characterized by abuse, by turbulence, by violence, by struggle in all things. It's it's characterized by the ongoing performance cycle that says, I've got to live up to expectations of myself, of other people, of those around me. This rat race that goes on and on and on and is, is at its core defined by the reality that we never can actually get where we're trying to get. And Jesus not only adopts us out of that, God not only adopts us out of that through Jesus, but he adopts us into a whole new family culture. A culture of love. A culture of peace. That Hebrew word that means like everything is in its right place. And a culture of certainty where your value, your significance, your security, or your acceptance does not rest upon your day's performance or the production of the past week. This is the family we've been brought into. Now you're saying, if you've been listening the last two weeks, okay, Adam, thanks for a recap on weeks one and two. And fair enough. But the big question of this morning is then, what do we do then? How do we respond to this reality of adoption? What is the right response to this great thing that God has done? And to put it in John's basic language, he says, purify yourself because he is pure. Can I make that a little bit more easy for us to process? How you live matters greatly. How do you respond to this truth of adoption? If it's something that is true of you, you change your life's trajectory. You, in essence, and for its fullness, leave the family of Adam and fully embrace the family of God in Jesus. See, it's funny is that Jesus does not use adoption language, right? You can't find that kind of language in any of the teachings of Jesus. It's just the early preachers who are trying to understand the the full counsel of God in light of what Jesus has done. Jesus doesn't use adoption language. He uses a different metaphor, and maybe you're familiar with it. He uses the metaphor of marriage, right? 
Jesus calls himself a lot of times the bridegroom. And he calls us the bride. Right? In essence, the picture is we're getting married to Jesus and that's how we're coming into this new family of God. And of course, the Bible is filled with truth about marriage that, that healthy marriage only happens when you leave and cleave, you leave the family of origin and cleave to the new bride and the new family unit that is created. This is what John's talking about. This is what Paul's talking about. That in our union to Jesus, our marriage to Jesus, that enables our adoption by God as sons and daughters out of this family of Adam and into this new creation thing, that our only right response then is to leave our family of origin and fully embrace this new family. Or as John would say it, purify yourself because your new father is pure. Or purify yourself because your new bridegroom, Jesus, is pure. Here's the truth friends. And that is that sometimes our response to the grace of God, to the truth of adoption, to the wonderful thing that God has done through Jesus is awfully flippant, isn't it? That as we say, oh my goodness, what a great thing that God has done for me. And therefore, I can keep doing whatever I want and He'll keep doing those things. And on one hand, I want to say to you, congratulations, you have understood grace. That's true. (laughs) But on the other hand, I want to say to you, oh, my friend, you have not understood grace because you haven't actually embraced it as something that changes you. That's why John writes here that anyone who is in this new family, they don't go on sinning. That's what characterizes them. And we need to pause and make sense of this because this is strong language, right? And at this moment, if you're reading John, you have to be having the thought, well, then I must not be in because uh, count my sins just in the, in the morning time before I made it to church this morning or in the midst of church or thinking through the rest of the day. Uh, that line from John doesn't characterize me. And fair enough, you're right, and thanks for being honest. It doesn't characterize me either. John is not talking about individual acts of sin no longer happening. He's talking about a trajectory of life. Do you see it? I'm no longer walking in this self-rule, rebellion against God, I'm going to run things, I'm in charge kind of way. And instead, this 180 degree turn away and now walking towards God through Jesus. He's talking in big sweeping terms about the trajectory of your life not the overall success of your sin report card, right? This is what John means. So he says, listen, if someone has zero change in their life, in their life's trajectory, what that means is, yeah, they've heard, but they haven't actually believed. We've talked about this pretty recently, kind of all through the book of James as we've gone through that, correct? That is that there's a difference between hearing and doing. And that faith without works is actually dead. Because genuine faith always demonstrates itself in a new life trajectory. Think about this with me. 
that if we have joined the family of God, in essence, what we have done is taken God's name as our own, right? Uh, one beautiful thing that, that sometimes married couples do is, is they take a shared last name, right? Uh, either some form of their uh, previous last names or, or choosing one of their last names, and it's just a symbol of being joined together. But the truth of that then is that then however you live after that has bearing on a shared name with someone else. You understand that? If you go into massive debt, <laughs> if you uh, act in, in incredibly um, perverse ways or other things, that it all has bearing on this new shared name. And one of the things that Paul is constantly trying to get us to understand, and John here is trying to get us to understand, is that when we're flippant about how we live, because we say, oh, God, God God just pours grace out on me, and so I know I keep messing up, but He pours grace out on me. What we're actually missing is that we're dragging God into every single thing we do. Does it make sense? And we're dragging His name into it. Let me make it a little bit more poignant for you. Because the New Testament is clear. The thing that makes adoption possible is that we are joined to Jesus. We call this union with Christ, right? Uh, so we say Christ is in us. We also say we are in Christ. There's this deep union. So if that is true, and I would say to you, if you are a believer in Jesus, it is true. You have to believe that to be a Christian, right? If that is true, then that means, and Paul is constantly in all of his letters, especially to the Corinthians, because they're into some weird stuff, right? If you read any of 1 Corinthians, he's trying to get them to understand, listen, listen. Yes, God is gracious, but when you do that stuff, do you understand you are forcing Jesus to do it with you? You see this? That you're joined together, right? And so in everything you do, because you're part of this new family, you're not off doing it in the quiet of your own room or the secret somewhere else where you're telling yourself this isn't affecting anyone else. This is the picture of what the New Testament writers are trying to get us to understand. That living a new way is not just about, well, God said so, so I have to. Right? Most of men, not many of us, I don't want to get too cavalier here, growing up in the church have processed spirituality through the lens of God said so, so I have to. And for most of us, that's not super effective. Right? Because if you're anything like me, you're like, God said so, so I won't. Right? Because that's how we respond to that. That's not at all what's going on here. God is saying, this is the culture of my new family. I'm inviting you into this. And so live this way. And so what we're actually saying is that we're not just choosing to live a new way because God told me I had to, but because we actually believe living this way leads us to a fuller life. Think about this. When someone gets married, they don't just do it because they figure they have to, right? At least I hope so. When someone gets married, they don't just do it because someone forced them to. At least I hope so. When someone gets married, it happens out of a culture of love and a belief that this new union is going to lead to a fuller existence and a fuller life. You see, this is the picture of faith in Jesus. That when we enter into this, it's not just so we have some kind of get out of hell free card. 
It's the belief that what we're entering into actually has ramifications in the now that gives me full life in all that I do. And so how you live matters deeply. Jesus has entered right into this mess and has offered us a new way. I love how the message summarizes this in Romans chapter um, 5, verse 18 and 19. If you're not familiar with the message, it's like like a paraphrase that takes the Bible and makes it super easy to understand. He says, listen, here it is in a nutshell. <laughs> Just as one person did it wrong and got us in all this trouble with sin and death, another person did it right and got us out of it. But more than just getting us out of trouble, he got us, listen, into life. One man said no to God and put many people in the wrong. But one man said yes to God and put many people in the right. What Jesus offers us in this new culture, this new family, this new way of living, this new trajectory for your life is a path that actually leads to full life. It actually leads to true purpose, to meaningful significance, security, and acceptance that, long, that you long for deep in your soul. Because you, are, you and I are returned to being truly human again. So we're left with a singular question then. How on earth do we do this, right? Because we've just all admitted, at least I've accused you, of struggling with sin, right? And if you don't think that you're struggling with sin, well, you know, talk to Pastor Jim later if you're from Nazareth. <laughs> if you're from here, talk to Pastor Jim later. Right? <laughs> We all struggle with it. And yet, we're part of this new family. So the question then is, how do we we fully embrace this new family? Because we want this full life. And I want to suggest to you, it's actually quite simple. And yet, it's incredibly difficult. The path towards embracing this full life is actually quite simple. The path to renouncing uh, the family of Adam and embracing the family of of God in Jesus is actually quite simple. And here's how it works. You have to have a right belief, which naturally leads to a true identity, which always leads to right living or right behavior. Does this make sense? That we believe we have an identity and therefore we live or we behave. This is how we step outside of the family of Adam and fully embrace the family of God. Think about it like a tree with me for a minute because the trees are often the imagery of the Bible, right? What you believe is like the roots of the tree, right? That's where the the nutrients and the truth come into who you are. And then your identity is like the trunk of the tree, right? This is what what grows up and what is stable and what enables growth at the top. And then your behaviors or how you live is like the leaves or the fruit of the tree. Now for many of us, here's how we have tried to stop wrestling with sin or how we've tried to to not be part of the family of Adam anymore and live in the family of God. 
We just cut off the fruit, right? We're like, well, I shouldn't be doing this. I know that, so I'm just going to cut it off. And then like a week later, it grows again, right? Or maybe it pops up in a new place. Uh, we spent a good part of our day yesterday weeding in the backyard, and I've used this illustration maybe a million times, but here we go again, right? I do not have the patience to be an effective weeder. And what that means is I'll spend the rest of my life weeding, right? Because I rip things off at the ground level, and then a couple weeks later, I'm so frustrated that there's the same thing I ripped off again because I didn't take the time to get down. This is how we live our Christian lives, and we wonder why we are stuck in the way we are. Listen, if you go outside and find an apple tree and just cut off all the apples, my guess is in a little while if you pass by that tree, you're going to find a whole new harvest of apples. Because apple trees grow apples. Your problem, my problem, is not stopping doing the things. We have to understand that it is our identity that always produces our choices our behaviors, our actions, our lifestyles. Who we are, who we think we are, or who we want to be always produces what we choose, how we act. And so, if you want something different, then you need a new identity. It's why this reality of adoption is so critical It's why I shared that quote here in Bethlehem last week from the great theologian J.I. Packer, that anyone who is growing in their Christian faith has come to grips with the truth of adoption as central to who they are. But here's the thing. You can't have a true identity if you've believed the wrong things. Right? Because you can't just, you know, ever have a huge tree in your yard and, and you cut it down and you think, that was hard work, but at least it's gone. And then you realize, oh, there's the stump and the roots. That's the worst part of the whole thing, right? How am I going to ever get these things out? You can't just take a new tree and put it on top of an old stump and hope things work out okay. That doesn't how it works, right? And so we've got to actually deal with what we actually believe. And here's the problem. For many of us, our, we've been taught and we've agreed that what we believe is just a set of facts that we've okayed that make us Christian. That's not beliefs. That's doctrine. Okay? We should have right doctrine. That's good. But what you believe is what you trust. It's what you build your life on. Right? It's the thing you're actually giving yourself to. So fine if you have a wonderful doctrinal statement that looks pure, but if you don't believe it and trust it, it's going to lead to a faulty identity which is going to always produce bad fruit. You see this? The fruit of rebellion, of me trying to gain my own significance, my own security, my own acceptance in this world. And so as you look at your life, you have to begin asking some hard questions, right? I had a professor in seminary who said this, and I think it's super poignant, but it cuts right to the chase. He said, listen, bad fruit doesn't grow in a vacuum. It doesn't come from nowhere. It doesn't just show up. So we have to ask ourselves when we're struggling, when we're wrestling with sin and, and wanting to not be there anymore, we have to ask ourselves, well, who, who am I, really? Who am I trying to be? What is leading to this? And then when we get an honest assessment of that, we have to ask, well, wait a minute. What am I actually trusting? What am I actually believing? 
that's producing this faulty identity. And when you're finally there, now you're dealing with the roots. Now you're dealing in the places of the gospel where you can begin to rely again on the gospel. Here's how the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome puts this process in Romans chapter 6. He says, listen, in the same way, count yourself dead to sin but alive in Christ, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Keep it back on that last verse. Uh, In the same way, count yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. This word count is the Greek word logizomo. We get our word logic, right? We're talking about talking to yourself, right? We're talking about reframing what we actually believe. We're talking about constantly speaking the gospel to the roots of our lives because we've got to trust it if we're going to build the right identity. Paul goes on. He says in verse 12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Right? Notice how he started with the first one first. So that you obey its evil desires. But before, before we can get to that place, here's what we have, no, keep going. Here's what we have to do. He says, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. Now what is this verse all about? It's about identity. You see it? Who are you offering yourself to? Who are you? What does it mean to be Adam? This time I mean me. Right? What does it mean to be Tony or, or Heather? What does it mean to, to be... Uh, Tammy or Kevin or whoever you are. What does it mean to be human? What are we supposed to be, honestly, in this thing? Based on that is who we offer ourselves to. He goes on. He says, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Notice that Paul's trajectory here is, listen, when your belief is right, when you're trusting the right things, it leads you to offer yourself to God, to have a right identity in who you are. And when you have a right identity, your behavior kind of happens naturally. Maybe this makes sense? Like sin actually recedes on its own in your life. Doesn't mean it's not hard work. Doesn't mean you don't fully give yourself to it. But what you're giving yourself to is not the behavior part. It's the roots and the identity part. Do you see it? And when that happens, when you're growing a healthy orange tree, oranges, they kind of bloom on their own, don't they? But they bloom because we've given all the attention necessary to the right things to trust and the right identity to have. The only right response to the beautiful truth of adoption which is central to our Christian faith, is to have a new trajectory in life. Yeah, that means to renounce our family of Adam and to embrace this new family that we're in. Not just in a doctrinal truth. Yes, I'm adopted. But in how we actually live. And the path to it is to grow healthy roots through trusting, honestly trusting the right things that leads to a healthy trunk, a true identity, who you are, a son, a daughter, a full heir of God, fully accepted, fully significant, completely secure, free to live how God tells you to live, 
because you don't have to prove it or earn it to anyone else. And then what happens? You grow good fruit. You start to live in the culture, the ethos, the way of Jesus, the way of God's new family. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Paul famously concludes this letter to the Romans after spending the first 11 chapters making sense of the gospel in profound ways. He says, therefore, right? In other words, the only right response to what God has done is to offer yourselves as a living and holy sacrifice. I'm not talking about laying down on an, uh, uh, on an ancient altar of sorts. He's talking about a new life trajectory. Living God's way for God's glory, not just because God told you to, because it's what it means to be truly human. And it's the means by which we access true life. To embrace the family of God means to step outside our family of origin. Hey, plan to be with us next week in Nazareth at the YMCA, here again at Bethlehem at Spring Garden. We're going to go a little deeper in this reality of leaving behind family of origin. We're going to talk about our actual earthly families and how uh, in many ways they've been gifts of God to us, but in many ways they've also created a culture that maybe isn't the family of God. And what does it mean to live in that reality? And also, what does it mean to be part of all kinds of different tribes on this, in this world? political parties, communities, whatever, and yet be a Christian. Jesus says to live in the family of God means loyalty first comes to God. We'll talk about that next week as we're together. Can we pray?